our Father who's in heaven. We're thankful for this opportunity you've given us to study from your word, to continue to learn more about your love and your grace and your son, Father. We're so thankful for your word that encourages us and builds us up and makes us more like Jesus. We pray, Father, that you will bless this period of study. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, believe it or not, but we are almost at the end of our studies from the book of Hebrews. For the past several weeks, for the past several classes, we've been considering the book of Hebrews. And in this class, we're going to look at Hebrews 12. And then, Lord willing, on the Lord's Day, we're going to look at Hebrews, the 13th chapter. And then that will conclude our studies. And so, if you remember, in our last video, we considered one of the most magnificent chapters in all the Bible, a chapter that deals with the subject of faith. It is commonly referred to as the Hall of Faith or the Honor Roll of Faith. In that chapter, we, we learned that the proper way to respond to the superiority of Jesus and the superiority of his covenant is to live by faith. It is to follow in the footsteps of people like Abel, a man who offered up a sacrifice to God that was pleasing to God on the basis of faith. The Bible says that even though Abel is dead, he still speaks, that is, by his righteous example of faith. He, he's still speaking from the grave. He's still testifying that the way to please God is on the basis of faith. We got to be like Abel. We got to be like Enoch. We got to be like Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and David and Rahab and Samson and Samuel and all the prophets. From the book of Hebrews, the 11th chapter, we learned that faith is the way. It is the way to heaven. If we're going to please God, we got to walk by faith. We got to live by faith. All of these people in Hebrews 11, they live by faith. And the point of that is we got to be just like them. We got to follow in their footsteps. You got to walk by faith. You got to live by faith. And you got to finish in faith. In fact, the idea of finishing in faith will continue on into the next chapter in Hebrews chapter 12. And so let's read Hebrews 12, starting with verse number 1. After giving us the, the examples of those who, in the time of the Old Testament, lived by faith and finished in faith, he says in Hebrews 12 and verse number 1, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which easy, so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not resisted to the point of shedding blood, 
and you're striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we have earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Should we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they discipline us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he, referring to God, disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness." All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Okay, let's stop right there and let's just spend a few moments breaking down the first 11 verses of this chapter. Remember, the purpose of these classes is just to give you a general overview of what's being said and in, in the chapters so they can help you in your further study of this book. And so let's look at these first 11 verses, and let's start with verse number 1. Notice how here, beginning in verse number 1 of Hebrews 12, as the Hebrew writer talks about our lives as Christians, as he talks about our, our walk on this earth as Christians, he describes it, as a race. He, he says that our walk as Christians is just like being in a race. And our case is not a physical race, but it is a spiritual race. We are in a race right now as the people of God. And as we run this race, notice how he says that we are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. We have witnesses to us running this race. In a sense, we have people watching us and even cheering us on. Who are those people? Who are these people who are the spiritual witnesses of us as we run this spiritual race? Well, my dear friends, I submit to you that the people he's referring to there, this cloud of, of witnesses that he is talking about is a reference to the people that he has just spoken of in Hebrews 11. It is people like Abraham and Sarah and Rahab and Gideon and Moses and Joseph these people that he just commended in the previous chapter, these people who walked by faith and lived by faith and finished in faith, they are the cloud of witnesses. They are the people who are cheering us on right now, hoping that we are also successful in our race. They are the people who have paved the way and set the example for us when it comes to living by faith. They are the cloud of witnesses. They are the example we are to look to when it comes to living and running in faith. He says, as we run this race, we are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. And then 
After saying we should be motivated by this cloud of witnesses, the second thing he then talks about is he talks about how exactly we ought to win this race. He says we ought to be motivated by the example of those in the past who ran and finished in faith. And then he talks about how exactly we can win this race just like they won this race. First, he says that if we're going to finish and win the spiritual race that we're in, then the first thing we got to do is we got to lay aside. Notice again, chapter 12 and verse 1. He says we got to lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. We got to lay aside every encumbrance and the sin or the sins that so easily entangle us. What does that mean? What does that language mean? Well, brothers and sisters, that language that the Hebrew writer uses there means that we got to eliminate anything from our lives right now that threatens to trip us up and weigh us down as we run this spiritual race. Anything that threatens to trip us up or weigh us down as we run this race, we got to get rid of it. We got to dispose of it. We got we to gotta cast it off. Now, it is commonly suggested that in the time of the first century, when athletes or runners compete in races, so often they would compete in the nude. They would be completely exposed. They would be completely naked. And the reason they did that is they did not want anything to weigh them down as they ran in their races. They wanted to be completely naked, completely nude as they ran. They wanted nothing to weigh them down and hinder them and in that same sense, the Hebrew writer is, is saying that, that, that we got to be like that. We got to make sure that as we run the races that in which we're in, the spiritual race, we got to cast off whatever may be weighing us down, whatever threatens to trip us up and hinder us. We got to get rid of it. We must let nothing entangle us. Whatever sins are in our lives right now that are threatening us and hindering our relationship with God and our ability to obtain the goal, we got to get rid of it. We got to get rid of the sins that are that may be entangling us right now and tripping us up. I don't care if it's if it's sexual immorality, if we got sexual immorality in our lives right now, if that's the sin that we are entangled in, if that's the sin that is weighing us down, the Hebrew writer says, you got to get rid of it. You got to get that off of you. You won't win the race with the sin of sexual immorality weighing you down. You won't win the race if you got evil friends who are corrupting your morals. You won't win the race if you are entertaining yourself with ungodly entertainment. You won't win the race if you're being weighed down by alcohol, if you're getting weighed down by lying or gossip, whatever sins that are tripping you up and entangling you right now, you must cast those things off. You got to get rid of that weight. Otherwise, you won't win the race. You know, it's interesting how throughout the New Testament, the Christian walk is described as a race. 
Philippians 3. Look at Philippians 3. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 26 and 27. Paul often used the idea of a race to talk about Christianity. And I'm not sure Paul is the writer of Hebrews, but whoever the writer is of Hebrews, he's doing the very same thing. We're in a race. And if we want to win it, if we want to finish it successfully, the first thing we got to do is we got to get rid of all of the sin. We got to get rid of the things that easily entangle us and the sins that weigh us down. And then the second thing he says we got to do is we got to run, spiritually run, with endurance the race that is set before us. Notice he says we need endurance if we're going to win this race. We're not in a sprint. We're in a marathon. We're in a spiritual marathon right now, and if you're going to finish a marathon, you've got to have endurance. You've got to have endurance. That means that you've got to have a mindset that you're never going to quit. You're never going to give up. Well, no matter what you go through in this life, no matter how discouraged you may get, no matter how often the devil assaults you in your life, no matter what trials and tribulations you may endure in this life, you must never quit. You must never give up. God does not need quitters on his team. If we're going to successfully win this spiritual race that we're in right now, we got to have endurance. We got to have a mindset that we are going to finish this race in faith. I will never quit on Jesus. I don't care what comes my way. I think this is an especially important point for these Hebrew Christians that this book was originally written to. Remember, the main reason why this book was even written in the first place was to encourage some Hebrew Christians who were considering leaving Jesus, giving up on Jesus, and going back to trying to live under the Old Testament law of Moses. Because of persecution, because of various trials they were experiencing in the first century, many of these Christians, these Hebrew Christians, they were ready to give up. They were ready to go back to Judaism. They were ready to leave the superior for the inferior. And the Hebrew writer is saying, you, you got to get some endurance. You can't give up on Jesus. You will not gain the prize of heaven if you quit. So, so that message was especially important for these Hebrew Christians, but it's also important for us. I can't begin to tell you how many times, unfortunately, I have seen Christians today quit. They give up on Jesus. They give up on the Lord, whether it's because they don't want to get rid of a sin that they're entangled in at that moment. Or they start going through various trials and tribulations and, and they want to blame God for those problems. I can't begin to tell you how many times I have seen people, unfortunately, leave the truth. They leave Jesus and they go back out into the world. And unfortunately, unless those people get back in the race again, they're going to be lost. Their souls will be condemned to hell forever. 
The scripture says if we're going to finish this race, we got to have endurance. And we also, thirdly, we got to fix our eyes on Jesus. Verse 2, we got to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. If I'm going to win this race that I'm in as a Christian, I got to look to the cloud of witnesses, look to their example. I, I got to make sure that I, I don't let sin and ungodly living weigh me down. I got to get that out of my life. I got to make sure I have endurance and I also have to fix my eyes on Jesus. The idea there is I got to stay focused on Jesus. I got to stay focused on the goal that I am trying to achieve. The goal that I am trying to achieve, according to what you learn here and to what you learn in Philippians 3, the goal I am trying to achieve is Jesus. I want to know Jesus. I want to become more like Jesus. I want to develop and maintain a relationship with Jesus. Jesus is the goal. And if I'm going to accomplish that goal, I got to stay focused on that goal. I got to stay focused on Jesus. I got to stay focused on knowing him and maintaining a relationship with him. I got to keep my eyes on Jesus. Can't focus on what's going on around me. Can't stay focused on the trials and tribulations that I'm enduring. I can't stay focused on, on, on my own self-pity and, and the things that may be discouraging me. I can't stay focused on that. I got to stay focused on, on, on Jesus. Fix my eyes on Jesus. Lock in on him. Why? Well, because he's the author and perfecter of faith. The idea there is Jesus, the goal. He is the originator of faith. He is the originator of the system of being justified by faith. And he's also the one who will ultimately reward me for my faith. He is the one and really the only one that can help me finish in faith. I got to stay focused on Jesus. I got to stay focused on the one where the system of justification by faith originates from. And also the one who can reward me when I finish in faith. Let me tell you something, my friends. The reason so many people leave Jesus at the end of the day, the bottom line reason, while every year, nearly every church loses someone to the devil, is because there are people in almost every church who lose focus on Jesus. They take their eyes off the prize. They take their eyes off the goal. They take their eyes off of the author and perfecter of faith. Whenever we lose focus on Jesus, that's when we're going to get in problems. That's when we're going to have problems. It actually reminds me of that story in the New Testament when Jesus was walking on the water. I believe this is Matthew 14. Jesus is walking on the water, and the apostles are in, in a boat. It's about 3 o'clock in the morning, and they look out, and they see Jesus walking on the water. And they're terrified at first. They think they're seeing a ghost. But once they realize it's Jesus, 
Peter then asked permission to come out onto the Sea of Galilee in the middle of a storm at 3 o'clock in the morning to, to, to meet Jesus. He says, can I come out of the boat and walk out on the sea like you're walking out on the sea, and can I come and meet you? And Jesus says, you, you, you come. You, you come to me, Peter. And Peter, unlike the other apostles, he had enough faith to at least get out of the boat and he was taking a few steps on the water. He actually was walking on water with Jesus. But after taking a few steps, the scripture says he began to notice the storm around him. And he got terrified. And then he began to sink. He began to drown in the sea. And Jesus reached out and grabbed him and saved him. And Jesus says, why did you doubt? Why did you wave your waver in your faith? Now, I give credit to Peter for at least getting out of the boat. The other apostles didn't even do that. And I give credit to Peter for taking a few steps in faith on the water with Jesus. He deserves a lot of credit for that. I, I probably wouldn't have not even made it that far. But here was the problem with Peter. The reason he began to sink, the reason he started going into the water and needed help from Jesus because he was dying was because he took his eyes off Jesus. He was doing fine as long as his eyes were locked in on Jesus. He didn't start having problems until he started focusing on the storm. When he started focusing on what was going on around him, then he lost his focus. Then he got scared. And that's when he began to drown. Peter would have been just fine had he just stayed locked in on Jesus. And the same principle is true for us today. We're going to finish the race. We got to stay focused on Jesus. We got to remember Jesus. We got to remember that the author and perfecter of our faith, he isn't requiring us to do anything that, that he hasn't done already. When you go back to Hebrews chapter 12, and, and when you continue in verse number two, there the Hebrew writer makes the point that just like Jesus, or just like he's just like we are required to endure, Jesus also endured. Jesus also went through trials and tribulations on this earth. Jesus also suffered on this earth. In fact, he suffered to the point of dying on a cross. Jesus endured on this earth. Jesus suffered. And the Hebrew writer says that whenever you start losing heart, whenever you get discouraged, remember that. Remember Jesus. He says in verses 2 down to verse number 4, remember that Jesus faced hostility at the hand of sinners. Jesus was persecuted by sinners, by godless people. He was beaten, slapped around, mocked, spit on. He faced hostility. He, he, he went through trials, hard times because of righteousness. Remember that while we may have to experience some tough times as we travel through this life, while we may have some persecutions and some moments of discouragement, nothing we face in this life compares even closely to, to, to what, to remotely close to, to what Jesus went through. N nothing we face comes close to what, to what Jesus faced. According to verse 4, the Hebrew writer says to these Christians, and he's also saying to us, you've not resisted to the point of shedding blood, and you're striving against sin. I mean, you're trying to live a faithful life. You're, you're trying to, to be holy before the Lord as you live on this earth, and, and you may suffer some because of that, but I don't care what you go through, my friend. 
especially living in 21st century America, you haven't come close to suffering for the cause of God like Jesus did. Whenever we start wanting to complain and get discouraged and quit, we got to remember Jesus. We got to remember Jesus also suffered. Jesus endured. In fact, Jesus endured to the point of having to shed blood on a cross. We may have it tough at times. The things we go through doesn't remotely come close to what Jesus went through. So remember that when you get discouraged, when you start losing heart. In verses 5 through 10, he talks about the discipline of God towards his children. He says that as Christians, as the people of God, whenever we start getting discouraged in life, we need to remember who our Heavenly Father is. God is our Father, and we're his children, and at times God is going to discipline us as his children. We shouldn't be surprised when God disciplines us as his children. In fact, the truth is we should expect it. We should expect discipline from any good father, right? I mean, in that section, if you look at it very carefully, the Hebrew writer makes the point that a father, a good father, he'll always discipline his children. We understand that. A good father will always point out the error of his children the bad behavior of his children, and, and, and he'll do his best to correct that bad behavior. We understand that when it comes to earthly fathers. You know, I have two beautiful children. Now I have two beautiful children and a dog, but I'm not going to talk about the dog right now. I'm just going to talk about my biological kids. When it comes to my, my two children, one is 10, I have a 10-year-old son, a four-year-old girl, and they're, they're, they're wonderful children, my wife and I love them immensely. They're a great blessing to our, to our lives, but as any parent knows, sometimes your kids get out of line, right? Oh yeah, they get out of line sometimes. And as parents, what, what are we supposed to do when our kids get out of line? Are we supposed to just sit back and, and do nothing? Are we supposed to just let them continue on in bad behavior and eventually bring harm to themselves and others? Of course not. For those of us who are parents trying to serve the Lord, we know that, that if we're going to be good parents, if we're going to be the kind of parents that please God, then we have to discipline our children when they get out of line. When they do things that are destructive and harmful to themselves and, and other people, we must not only point out that bad behavior, but we must do our best to correct and discipline them for that bad behavior. Now, in our household, that may mean losing a privilege. That may mean having to go to your room for a time. That may mean having to get a good talking to, and sometimes that means you might, you might have to get the belt for, for a little bit. I can count maybe on two hands the number of times I've had to, to discipline my, my kids with a belt, and each time it brings no joy to me to do that. I don't do that because it's fun and I like it because I don't. It's not fun and I don't like it, but I do it because I truly love them. I want them to understand as children what bad behavior is and how when you do bad things, there are going to be consequences. We do that because we love our kids. We want to help them. We want to help them now 
as we train them in the ways of God so they can grow up and be, grow up and be good and productive citizens in their community and they won't harm themselves and others. We understand that parents have to discipline children. Earthly fathers discipline their kids, and the same is true with God. God does the same thing with his children. And we should embrace that. I mean, if God is really our father, we should embrace discipline from our father. That means that we're really his children. We're not illegitimate. We're really God's children because he disciplines us. The question is, how does God discipline us? How does God discipline us as his children? Well, there's a lot we could say about that. In this video, we could spend a whole class talking about that, but just for this video, I want to give you two things to think about. Two ways in which I think we can be pretty sure it are ways in which God disciplines us as his children. First, over in 2 Timothy chapter 3, in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 16, 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16, Paul says all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Notice that again. Profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Notice how one of the ways in which God corrects us or reproves us or even rebukes us. We got another way we could say that is discipline us is through his word. Whenever we open up God's word and we read a standard that he has put out there that we're not in line with currently, that's God's way of disciplining us. That's God's way of exposing our error and telling us that we need to get in line with his will. Otherwise, we're going to suffer eternally. God disciplines us. He corrects us. He trains us through means of his word, through the reading of his word, the studying of his word, the preaching and the teaching of his word. God disciplines his children through the instructions given in the gospel. We can be really sure of that because the scripture says so. But then a second way God also disciplines us is through church discipline. Church discipline, a neglected commandment uh, among many churches in our society today. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there we can read about a brother who in the church in Corinth was in sexual immorality with his stepmother. He was living an immoral life, and unfortunately, the Corinthians were not doing anything about that. They were letting that brother stay there in sin. They did not tell him about the error of his way and expose it and discipline him. Instead, they allowed him to continue on in that, and Paul says they were wrong for that. Paul says to those brethren in Corinth, you need to step up and practice church discipline. You need to follow the principles of Matthew 18, and if he doesn't repent, you need to withdraw from him. You need to deliver him over to Satan so that he can understand the seriousness of his sins and repent and come back to God. Church discipline was the formula God wanted used to help this brother in 1 Corinthians 5 come back to him. 
And I think when you study 2 Corinthians 2, the evidence there shows that God's plan worked. Once the Corinthians exercised church discipline against this brother in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I think in 2 Corinthians 2, we learn that, that brother repented and he came back to the Lord. And so through means of preaching and teaching from God's word and through means of discipline from the local church, that's how God disciplines his children. That's God's plan. And why does God discipline us? Well, the Hebrew writer said in those last few verses, particularly verses 10 and 11 of chapter 12, he says God does that so we can be made better, so that we can be made holy and stay holy before him. God has a plan for the, the discipline that he engages against us at times. And then look at verse number 12, Hebrews 12 and verse 12. Therefore, after talking about the discipline of God and how we got to have endurance and keep our eyes focused on Jesus, therefore strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled, and, there, and that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal, for you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Okay, I just want to give you the big picture of what's going on there. There in those verses, the Hebrew writer is giving some practical, more practical instructions for how to successfully win the spiritual race. He says that if we are going to win this spiritual race, then one of the things we got to do, according to verses 12 through 13, is we got to help each other. We got to help each other as we run this race. I got to help you and you got to help me. We got to encourage each other. We got to look out among us and, and notice the weak brethren that may be among us. And we got to build them up. We got to strengthen them. We got to make sure that they're functioning at the proper level in the body of Christ. That's the point of verses 12 through 13. We got to help each other as we run, run this race. And then in verse 14, he says, we got to pursue peace with all men. As we live in this world, among mostly people who are not Christians, we shouldn't be viewed as troublemakers. We shouldn't be viewed as people who are trying to stir up trouble with against our government and our, and our fellow neighbor. Instead, we need to be like Jesus. The Bible says in Luke 2 and verse number 52 that Jesus grew up in wisdom and stature in favor with God and men. We need to be at peace with our fellow man. But that peace doesn't mean that we need to compromise our Christian values. We need to strive to be at peace with our community and with our fellow man as long as we don't compromise being sanctified in the eyes of God. We must maintain our sanctification and our holiness as long as we're not being forced to compromise our Christian principles and our Christian values. We must strive to be at peace with our fellow man. In verse 15, he says we also don't need to let bitterness spring up in our hearts. 
We don't need to be bitter against the instructions that God gives us in his word. We don't need to be bitter towards the discipline of God. We don't need to be bitter towards our brethren. We need to be at peace with the world, be at peace with our brethren. And one of the ways in which we maintain peace with each other is making sure we don't let bitterness spring up in our hearts. That's verse 15. And then in verses 16 through 17, he says, don't be like Esau. Esau was the older brother of Jacob. Remember, Esau gave up the blessing of the firstborn. He gave up his birthright blessing for one meal. For one meal, he sold away his blessing as the firstborn to his younger brother Jacob. And later on, he wanted it, he wanted that, that blessing back, that inheritance back, but, but it was too late. He gave away his blessing for, for almost nothing. And the point is, as Christians, we need to make sure that we don't make the same mistake. We don't need to give up our blessing, our inheritance that is waiting for us, for the things of this world, for things that don't even compare to the glory that is set before us. These Hebrew Christians need to learn from the, from the foolish mistake of Esau, and we need to learn from his mistake as well. We have a wonderful inheritance waiting for us, and we don't need to give it up. And so those are some practical things we need to be mindful of as we run this race. And then let's just finish the chapter now very quickly. Verse 18. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched in a blazing fire, and to darkness and to gloom and whirlwind and to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words which sound with such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But you, if you're a Christian, you, my friend, have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn, who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if those, who do, for if those did not escape when they refused him, who warned them on the earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken, as of created things, so that those which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. There's so much that can be said about those verses but I'm running out of time. And so let me just give you a few things to think about, okay? First, in verses 18 through 24, in verses 18 through 24, the writer points back to a very significant moment in the history of the nation of Israel. He talks about what happened to Israel when they came out of Egypt and arrived at Mount Sinai to receive the law of God. If you read Exodus chapter 19, you see that when Israel approached the mountain, 
they experienced some just terrifying things, some very frightening things. The scripture says they felt the mountain tremble. There was an earthquake. They heard the voice of God, and that absolutely terrified them. They also heard thunder, and, and they saw lightning and, and dark clouds, and, and, and the people could not even touch the mountain. The, the animals could not even touch the mountain, or they would die. I mean, it was a very frightening experience. It was a terrifying experience when God's presence came upon the mountain. In fact, the people were so terrified that they said, we don't want to hear God speak to us. We don't want to hear the voice of God. They said, Moses, you talk to God. We don't want to hear God talk. You know, so often we say, well, I believe if I hear the voice of God. Well, Israel heard the voice of God and they didn't want to hear it anymore. They said, Moses, you talk to God from now on. But Moses said that I'm scared also. I'm terrified of what's taking place. This was a frightening experience when Israel came into the presence of God at Mount Sinai. And the point of him saying that, the point of the writer bringing that up is to emphasize how as Christians, we got something better. We have something better as the church of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You see, unlike Israel in the Old Testament, who when they came to the physical mountain, they were absolutely terrified and they could, could not get near the presence of God. We as Christians have come to something far more better. We have not come to a physical mountain. Instead, we have come to a spiritual mountain. We have come to spiritual Mount Zion. We are a spiritual Mount Zion and he calls this other things. He calls it the city of the living God. We've come to the city of the living God as Christians. We've come to the heavenly Jerusalem. We've come to the general assembly and church of the firstborn. We have come into the presence of myriads of angels. That's what he says we have come to as the people of God. And the point of that is we have come to everything that the Old Testament foreshadowed. Everything the Old Testament foreshadowed when it came to God's people being in the presence of God and being able to be around the holiness of God, we have come to that. We are able to receive the privilege of everything God offers his people. We get to have a relationship with God, true forgiveness from God. We get to know God. Be part of God's family. We get to receive all the benefits and all the privileges that God offers his people. Everything the Old Testament foreshadowed, as Christians, we get to experience the real thing. We get to experience because of Jesus. Because verse 24 says, we have the mediator of a new covenant. He has blood that, that speaks better than the blood of a man who died because he offered a sacrifice to God that was pleasing to him. Jesus has blood that's more precious than that blood. Because of his blood, we're able to receive all the privileges that God offers his people. What a blessing. 
Right now, we've come to Mount Zion. Right now, we're God's people. And God is always with us because of Jesus. And then in verses 25 through 26, we have a warning. The warning there is because of what we've received, because we've come to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the church that belongs to Jesus, because we have these privileges as God's people, we should never turn away from them. We should never turn away from those privileges. The writer says that if those who rejected the law of Moses were punished by God, if they did not escape the wrath of God under the old covenant, do you think God's going to let us off the hook? Do you think God is going to let us escape his wrath and we are the recipients of blessings that far outweigh the blessings that Israel received under the old covenant? The answer to that is no. We don't want to be on the receiving end of God's wrath. If we reject what he's offering, it's not going to be good. If he punished those under the old covenant when they rejected him, he's definitely going to punish those under the new covenant when they reject him. And then in verses 26 through 29, we find another comparison being made between the old covenant and the new covenant. He says that just like God shook the earth, when giving the law, and God literally shook the earth when he gave the law at Mount Sinai, just like God shook the earth then, he's going to shake the earth again. He's going to shake the earth under the new covenant. Only when God shakes the earth under the new covenant, it's going to be for good. It's not going to be just a mountain that gets shaken up, but it's going to be the whole world. In fact, he also compares God to a consuming fire. He says under the old covenant, God was a consuming fire, and the same thing is going to happen under the new covenant. God will once again be a consuming fire, only this time it's going to be literal. Peter says in 2 Peter 3 that when the Lord comes back, he will literally consume the earth with fire. Planet earth will be no more. God shook the earth once, and he's going to shake it again, only next time it's going to be for good. God's going to consume it. With fire. And when God does that, we want to make sure that we're in a right relationship with him. I mean, since we are part of an unshakable kingdom, since we're part of the Lord's church, the Hebrew writer says in verse 28, we need to respond by showing gratitude. We need to be thankful towards God. And we need to make sure that we offer to God constantly acceptable service and reverence and awe. That's what God deserves because he's a consuming fire. So in the last chapter of this book, the writer is going to tell us how exactly to show God the kind of reverence he deserves. How to make sure we give God what he is due so that we won't receive his judgment when he shakes things up for good. Thank you for studying with me in this video. I hope it will help you. I know that's a, a lot to chew on there, and there's a lot more we could have said. But I hope this study will at least help you get an overall understanding of the point the Hebrew writer is trying to make in this wonderful chapter. On the Lord's Day, we'll conclude the book with chapter 13. Thank you.